I love this text, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the day of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision, virtual reality, I bet. <laughs> and when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. 
taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Let's pray. Father, what, what a great text. And, and what, a, what an encouraging note, uh, to, a reminder to us of the way you care for us and for your church. We pray that you would uh, you, give Tom the words to speak that would uh, really bring this message to our hearts through your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. What a passage, right? Good grief. Um, I always thought a, a Christian stand-up comedian could have a blast with this passage. But... Uh, my old friend David Schlemmy told me when I first stepped into this role, he said, if you're not funny, don't try to be. <laughs> so that's, I, I take that very seriously. Uh, <laughs> I need to let you know that after this morning, uh, we're going to be taking a break for several weeks from our study of Acts, but it's at the right point here um, the rest of the book, after chapter 12, is the missionary journeys of Paul, starting with chapter 13 and going to 28. David Dean will be speaking next Sunday, and I would encourage you all very much to be here and to bring friends. Invite, in fact, invite an unbelieving friend, because David's got a testimony that will rock your socks, um, and theirs too. And then Phil Bort's going to do a short series on the book of Philippians, and then we'll resume. Uh, we also have a message from Ron Allen, and then we'll resume Romans. We said at the beginning of this study that this entire book is about the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Our passage this morning is a vivid and powerful reminder of the entire sovereignty of our God, a reminder strategically placed immediately after God proved his intention to include both Jews and Gentiles in the spiritual household of God, and immediately before God sends Paul and Barnabas out to begin the work that would spread the gospel of Jesus like wildfire into all quarters of the Roman Empire. Herod shows up at both the beginning and the end of chapter 12. Now this is Herod Agrippa I. There are actually four Herods mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that? Four Herods in the New Testament. So I want to give a bit of context regarding the four Herods that will be helpful for understanding what's going on here and for understanding what's going on later in chapter 26. None of the men who bore the name Herod was ever an emperor of Rome. They were subordinate kings who ruled over specific territories and provinces in the Roman Empire under the authority of the Caesars, the actual emperors. The grandfather of, of this Herod, Agrippa I, was actually Herod the Great. So we're going to start with him. He's the first in the line of the Herods. Herod the Great was of mixed Edomite and Jewish descent. Uh, Edomite meant descended from Esau. Okay? Uh, according to multiple sources, he was raised as a Jew. But as with all of the rulers who succeeded him in the line of the Herods, his first allegiance was always to Rome and not to Israel. That's because his well-being depended on what the Caesars determined to do. He ruled over, Herod the Great ruled over all of the region of Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth. 
He had presided over the rebuilding of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. It was quite an undertaking. But he is best known, or perhaps I should say most infamously known in the Bible, as the Herod, the king spoken of in Matthew chapter 2, who ordered the execution of all the male babies in the city of Bethlehem, in and around Bethlehem, after hearing of the birth of the one that the Israelite prophets had said would come as king of the Jews. Herod thought that title should apply to himself. The second Herod mentioned in the New Testament is Herod Antipas, the uncle of Herod Agrippa. He's the son of Herod the Great, an uncle of Herod Agrippa that that is in our passage. Herod Antipas was the ruler of the province of Galilee, which, of course, was the home turf of Jesus when he grew up. Antipas is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded after John rebuked him for marrying his half-brother's wife. After Jesus was arrested, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, attempted to hand the sentencing of Jesus over to Herod Antipas because Jesus was from Herod's jurisdiction of Galilee. Okay? And Herod was visiting Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was arrested. But Antipas saw Jesus as more of a curiosity than a threat. I'm not so sure, though. It may be that because he was not so sure about the threat part, that's why he handed the sentencing, the verdict and the sentencing of Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. Herod had his soldiers mock Jesus. He dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and then he handed Jesus back to Pilate so that Pilate would render judgment against his own prisoner. That brings us to the third Herod mentioned in the New Testament, the one spoken of here in Acts 12, Herod Agrippa I. As a young man, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great, as a young man, Agrippa had befriended a couple of Roman princes named Caligula and Claudius, each of whom became emperor of Rome for a time. Those friendships proved to be very useful connections for Herod Agrippa. Caligula ruled for four years before being assassinated at the hands of his own palace guards as part of a grand conspiracy. And then Caligula was succeeded by Claudius. And by the time Claudius ascended to the emperor's throne in AD 41, Agrippa I had been granted ruling authority over all of Palestine again, like his grandfather. Uh, along with other provinces that included Phoenicia and other places. So Galilee, Samaria, and Judea that make up Palestine, those were all under his authority. Judea, of course, was the province in which the city of Jerusalem resided. And this is where it starts to get very relevant here. Since Jerusalem was the center of the entire Jewish system of worship, King Agrippa exercised a very substantial role in all affairs that had to do with the relationship between the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. I'll just mention briefly that the fourth Herod in the, in the New Testament is the one before whom the Apostle Paul will make his defense in Acts 26. That's Agrippa II, the son of the Agrippa here in chapter 12. Now, we'll have a pop quiz on this after the message. 
the Herods were friends of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, but they were fair-weather friends. Above all, they were opportunists who did whatever protected their own power and prestige. Their efforts to appease the leaders of the temple worship system in Jerusalem proceeded not out of any great love for Israel's God, but out of a great love for political expediency, predictability, and for the approval of the emperor to whom they had to answer. That would become particularly clear, painfully clear, in A.D. 70 when Agrippa II sided with the Romans in the destruction of the same temple that his great-grandfather had rebuilt. The province of Judea was heavily populated by Jews, and for nearly three months out of every year, at the times of the great annual pilgrimage festivals, the city's population exploded to something along the lines of 10 times or more, maybe 15 times its normal population. And those were Jews who came into the city. So the man who had the, had the responsibility to keep the peace in Judea found it more than just politically expedient to do things that pleased the priestly leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. His life depended on keeping the peace, especially during the times of those festivals. I don't know if you've ever been to Daytona Beach or South Padre during spring break, but it's that kind of explosion of population. <laughs> that is exactly the context in which we find ourselves here in Acts 12. Luke begins chapter 12 by connecting this passage with the previous one. He tells us that the events of this chapter happened at about the same time that Saul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem with a gift of money that had been graciously gathered by the saints in Antioch to provide for the saints in Jerusalem, which was more heavily, heavily persecuted by the Jewish leadership and was struggling. The, the people there were really struggling. The first three verses of chapter 12 say this, and, and I should mention also, there was a famine prophesied uh, through Agabus, and so... These saints in Antioch were making sure that they were taking care of those saints in Jerusalem. The first three verses of chapter 12 say this, Now about, the time, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened, unleavened bread. Now, since so much of the chapter then focuses on what happened to Peter after that arrest, it would be very easy to pass over the first couple of verses of this chapter. And i got to admit, I've done that before. But those two verses are vital to the point of this chapter. Herod Agrippa had begun laying hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And that's an understatement because he certainly didn't stop with harassment. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And the Jewish leadership was delighted with that. Now, this is the first martyrdom of a Christian recorded in Acts after the stoning of Stephen. James, of course, was a central person in all four of the gospel accounts. 
There was the 11 faithful disciples, if you discount Judas. Of those disciples, there were three who formed the real inner circle of the, the disciples that were closest to Jesus. Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. There were only these, these three, Peter, James, and John, were the only three men whom Jesus allowed to go with him into the home of Jairus in Mark 5 when he raised that man's daughter from the dead. They were the only three disciples whom Jesus allowed to witness his transfiguration in Mark 9, Matthew 17, Luke 23. If you're like me, when you come to Acts 12, you can't help thinking, all right, Luke, how about a little more backstory here on James? What was going on with James when Agrippa had him arrested and executed? But God doesn't give us any backstory. One thing we can safely assume is that James was not executed for being silent and harmless. We have every reason to believe that Herod Agrippa I had James killed for the same reason that he now arrested Peter, because the Jewish leadership was furious at both of those men for boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sum total of what we're told about the martyrdom of James is contained in this one verse, verse 2 of Acts 12. One verse about the execution of James followed by 17 verses about the rescue of Peter. But if we conclude that that means that the martyrdom of James was of little importance to Christ, we will be missing the most essential truth that this passage sets before us. We'll come back to that a little later. In verse 3 of this chapter, we learn that when Herod saw that his execution of James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Anybody, anybody care to guess what Herod planned to do with Peter to please, please the Jews even further? <laughs> yeah. Think for a moment about the set of events that come together in this passage and consider whether this scenario sounds familiar. The setting is the city of Jerusalem. The time is the annual Jewish celebration of the Passover and of the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed the Passover. The population of this city has mushroomed to 10 to 15 times its normal size. It is filled to overflowing, literally to overflowing, with Jews from communities all over the Roman Empire. The single most prominent person in the Church of Jesus Christ, the most well-known person in the Church of Jesus Christ, has been arrested and is going to be brought out the next day after the Passover to be presented publicly by the Roman authorities so that the judgment against him may be made public and so that that judgment may then be summarily carried out. Any of this sound familiar? It would have been impossible for the believers gathered in Jerusalem not to make the connection with the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus, and it would have been equally impossible for the Jewish leadership not to make that connection. What do you think was going through Peter's mind at this point? You may remember that Peter is the one disciple of Jesus who was told in advance explicitly that he would be martyred. 
for preaching the gospel. In the last chapter of John's gospel, the resurrected Jesus said to Peter, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And the very next verse says, now Jesus said this, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. So if I were in Peter's shoes, the question going through my mind at this point would be, you know, Lord, when you said that thing about me being martyred when I'm old, just how old were you thinking? (laughs) I suspect that every believer who knew of Peter's arrest and of the just accomplished execution of James was fully expecting that Peter would follow shortly in his master's steps all the way to a cross. Verses 4 and 5 say, And when Agrippa had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. I'm sure there were a lot of people praying all night. Believers in every place who knew of Peter's arrest prayed with all their hearts, calling out to God to protect this one who had already been so mightily used by God to save many. And we learn later in the chapter that a sizable group of those believers had gathered at the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Verse 6 seems to indicate that Peter was chained to a guard on each side. Two chains, two guards. And there were more guards in front of the prison door, watching it like a hawk. The soldiers guarding the entrance to the prison were most assuredly not sleeping on the job, as some liberals have posited. Luke says they were, quote, watching over the prison. (laughs) Again, that's an understatement. Luke goes to very great pains to make sure that we understand that what happens next is a miracle of the highest order. Any notion that Peter escaped because the guards were lazy and unattentive is utter nonsense. If you were a guard with this assignment, you had no doubt that that your assignment was a deadly, serious matter especially since the king who governed all of Palestine had taken such a very personal interest in the disposition of this particular prisoner. Now, I, of course, wouldn't be surprised at all if the two guards to whom Peter was chained let themselves doze off in the middle of the night because he would have had to drag two men out of the prison in order to get out, right? But at some point that night, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared right there in the cell where Peter was chained to two men and a light shone in the cell. (laughs) Now you would think that a sudden appearance of light in a dark prison might wake up those two guards had they drifted off to sleep. And if that didn't wake them, (laughs) you would think that an angel calling out to Peter, get up, quickly, might wake them up. And if that didn't wake them, well, you would surely expect that the chains falling to the ground from Peter's hands and arms 
and legs would have made quite a noise. But Luke says nothing whatsoever about those two guards. The angel told Peter to tuck his robe in his belt and put on his sandals because it was time to go. He told him to wrap his cloak around him and to follow as the angel led the way out of the prison. Now, if you ever had a dream <laughs> in which everything that was going on was so surreal and so completely unbelievable that you knew you were dreaming before you even woke up, I have. That was Peter's experience as he followed the angel out of the prison and then out of the city. He did exactly as the angel instructed, but because no part of what was happening to him matched up with anything that he had ever considered remotely possible, Peter was pretty sure all of this was just a vision. And he was just waiting to come out of it. When Peter and the angel came outside the door of the prison, they passed a first guard who was watching over the prison, and then they passed a second. And then they came to the iron gates of the entrance to the city. Now, you guys realize that Jerusalem was a fortified city. The gates through which people entered the city were enormous. Luke says that the huge, heavy iron gates of the city, quote, opened for them by themselves. And then as they continued walking along the road outside the city, the angel just disappeared. <laughs> Luke leaves absolutely no room, no room here for a naturalistic, anti-supernatural explanation for any of these events. Every single detail has the mighty hand of God all over it. Once he came to his senses, Peter had no confusion at all about the cause of the things that had just happened. Verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He knew how this was supposed to go, and he knew that he had just been miraculously and mightily delivered. Peter continued walking until he reached the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where he where he knew that many followers of Christ had been up all night praying for him. He knocked at the gate of Mary's house, and a young servant girl named Rhoda came to the gate, and she was so overcome by the sight of Peter that she just left him standing there outside. And she ran back in, and she was telling everybody who was out there. They all assumed that dear Rhoda had gone around the bend, but she stuck to her story. So they said, it is his angel. I guess they figured that Peter's guardian angel had spent so much time looking out for him that he started looking like him. I don't know. Peter kept banging on the gate, so they, they came and they opened it. They saw him, and they were amazed. Words couldn't, couldn't really capture that, that amazement adequately. Peter related the whole series of events that had happened that night while they all no doubt sat there dumbfounded. And then he told them to report all of this to James, the brother of Jesus, and to the rest of the brethren. And then he departed and went to another place. As I pondered this uh, passage throughout this week, I couldn't help thinking of one of my all-time favorite movies, The Great Escape. Any of you old enough to have seen that? Yeah. 
That movie was a heavily adjusted account of a true story about a group of Allied soldiers who tunneled their way out of a German prisoner of war camp during World War II. But what struck me, the reason that it came to my mind, is because of the stark contrast between the role that human beings played in that escape and the role that human beings played in this escape. The escape from that POW camp required many months of careful and painstaking planning and back-breaking labor, all done with meticulous effort to avoid detection. I actually read up on the real story behind the movie. The outcome of all that extraordinary human effort was, in a word, tragic. Of the, of the dozens of men who made it out through the tunnel, only three made their way to freedom. More than 50 were summarily executed and a small number was brought back to the prison. There were 600 who were working on the escape out of 1,800 prisoners. Peter's great escape, on the other hand, wasn't really an escape at all. It was an angelic escort. Had absolutely nothing to do with the plans or activity of human beings. Nothing at all. Even Peter, whose deliverance God miraculously brought about that night, thought he was dreaming the whole time. <laughs> he was not a participant. He was a recipient. <laughs> Peter's release from prison falls very decisively into the biblical category known as signs and wonders. This was God showing off, as only God legitimately gets to do. And it was God displaying and proclaiming his absolute sovereignty over men, over angels, and over every created thing. So if God could do all this, where was he when Agrippa had James executed at the point of his sword? Why would Agrippa's, Agrippa's murderous and mercenary intent toward one of the Lord's three most trusted disciples turn out so starkly different than that same intent directed toward another of those same three? We'll come back to that question later. I know I'm teasing a lot, but we'll come back. The last of the three major events that Luke sets before us in this chapter records the last days of Herod Agrippa I. Worshipped by men, eaten by worms. In verses 18 and 19, Luke tells us the fallout of the previous night's events. I love, again, Luke's understatement in verse 18. He says, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. How would you like to have been one of those guards? <laughs> or maybe the commander of those guards. They all knew it would be the last day that they would see on earth. Perhaps some of them learned enough about the message that had been preached by the man who was missing from the prison that we'll get to see them in glory. Herod questioned the guards himself, and he ordered that they be led away. And every commentator understands that to mean they're led away to be executed. Verse 20 fast-forwards to Herod's own last days on earth, which came not long after he sent those prison guards to their deaths. 
For reasons not stated by Luke, Herod had become very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They were two very important trade cities along the Mediterranean coast just northwest of Palestine. Luke tells us that because their country was fed by the king's country, they came before Herod and they appealed for peace in their relationship with him. This was especially important because of the prophecy that was coming. Word was getting around that there was going to be a famine. Herod put on his finest royal apparel, and he began delivering an address to these people from Tyre and Sidon. Clearly in hopes of winning him over, that multitude raised flattery to a whole new level. Calling out over and over as Herod spoke, the voice of a God and not of a man. That was music to Herod's ears. But his failure to humble himself and to give glory to God made that speech his last public act on earth. Verse 23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. It's no coincidence that the word struck that is used here in verse 23 is exactly the same word used in verse 7 when it says the angel struck Peter's side and said, get up and come out. The very same cause, but two dramatically different effects. There's been all manner of speculation about the exact process that took Herod's life. I love Wikipedia. It says, it appears that perhaps he was poisoned. <laughs> most accounts conclude that, uh, most of those who believe what the Bible says conclude that parasitic worms literally destroyed his internal organs. But whatever the means, the cause of his death is explicitly clear. An angel appointed by God struck Herod because he did not give God the glory. He glorified himself. And he died. Consider the stark contrast again between Peter's response in chapter 10 when Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him and Herod's response here when the people said that he spoke with the voice of a god. Peter grabbed Cornelius and pulled him up back onto his feet and he said, stand up, I too am just a man. Herod, on the other hand, gave no protest. He was enjoying it. Herod was a masterful opportunist. He had achieved much, or so it seemed, by his clever choices and his shrewd manipulation of people and events. So when this crowd finally declared what he already believed about himself, he could not bring himself to raise any protest. But as he died an agonizing death by the hand of God, right on the heels of basking in all that fawning praise from the lips of men, again, I can't help hoping that God finally humbled him to realize who had been calling the shots since long before any of the Herods ever existed. This passage ends with 
another of Luke's progress reports in verse 24, followed by one final verse that serves as a bridge, verse 25 serves as a bridge into the missionary journeys of Paul that fill the rest of the book of Acts. Immediately after saying that Herod was eaten by worms and died, Luke says in verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul, if you remember, Saul of Tarsus had set out to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and God had made him a mightily used ambassador of Christ. And that's what the rest of this book will unveil. Herod had wanted to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and he was eaten by worms and died. By this point in the book of Acts and in the entire progress of God's revelation of himself to mankind that we find in the Bible, it should be abundantly clear that the heart of a king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's Proverbs 21.1. Uh, before we leave this morning, I want to come back for just a moment to James, the brother of John. For the church of Jesus Christ, the second and third events that Luke records in this chapter give us much cause for rejoicing, just as they did for the church in Luke's day. But what about the first event in the chapter, the martyrdom of James? Where was God when another of the three faithful disciples in Christ's inner circle was arrested by this same narcissist of a king? A much better question would be, where was God when his own son was arrested, mocked, spat upon, tortured, crowned with thorns, and nailed to a cross in public view to die the most in the most humiliating manner known to the world at that time? Was God less sovereign in that event than in the rescue of Peter? Absolutely not. The timing and the method of Jesus' death and of James' death and of Stephen's death and of Peter's rescue and eventually of Peter's own martyrdom were all determined by God before anything existed except God. Beloved, God is ever sovereign, and he is sovereign in all things. There is not anything in your life, not anything that ever happens to you that is not, does not fall under the sovereign, perfect control of the living God. Never. This is one of the greatest realities for us who know Jesus is that nothing in our life is ever happenstance. Nothing is luck. It's all the sovereign work of God. Now here's another related question that we need to reckon with. Which of the two men that Herod arrested in this chapter actually received the greater blessing in the near term? Peter or James? Margaret says James, and I'm right there with her. After pondering this week what Don Glenn and Jim Baird are doing as we sit here today, I have to say that James received the far, far greater blessing in the near term.
And that's another of the revolutionary truths that we get to live with every single day of our lives as Christians. We are no longer enslaved to the fear of death because the sting of death has been undone by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Bob pointed out to me this week in Matthew 20, <laughs> James and John put their mom up to asking Jesus to, to promise her two sons positions at Jesus' right hand and left hand in his kingdom. <laughs> they wanted to be first. And at least in terms of timing, James got what he wanted. Out of Jesus' inner circle of three, he was first into the presence of his Savior and Master. It is good and right for us to ask God for temporary deliverance from physical death, from suffering, for ourselves and for those that we love. And it is good and right for us to rejoice when he provides such deliverances. But beloved, it does not honor Christ. And it doesn't even rightly reflect reality when we treat the end of a believer's physical life as anything other than a miraculous triumph of life over death. <laughs> for you and me who know Jesus, the death of this physical body is just a little bump in the road. Because as Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already crossed over out of death into life. You, if you know Jesus, you already have eternal life. It's already started. The death of your physical body, just a little bump in the road. And a really good one at that. And this was said this morning in the worship. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do we believe that? Yes, yes we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> I am so ready. I'm sorry. I, I know I, I, I do not like losing my composure. Um, it's one of my flaws, but... My brother Steve, when I told him about Gary's leukemia, my brother Steve Eichenbaum, he said, you know, last Saturday, Gary said to me, I am so ready to go be with the Lord. And he means it. I hope he stays here a long time. I'm praying for God to heal him. But you know what? If, he, if God has other plans, Gary loses nothing of eternal value. Nothing. And friends, it is only because Jesus stayed on the cross until he died that this wonderful truth is true for us. In his death is our everlasting life. Our gracious Father means for you and me to count that reality to be true and to say so at every opportunity. God is glorified when he rescues from physical death, and he is glorified when he withholds that rescue to bring about the greatest rescue of all. When a believer experiences that, that final participation in the curse that releases him or her from every residue of the curse forever, that is the rescue to beat all rescues. One more very quick thing. Sometimes we dare in our prayers to ask God for great things, but then when God actually does great things, we're stunned. We're just like the saints gathered at the home of John Mark's mother, praying all night 
for God to miraculously intervene to save Peter from execution. And then when Peter shows up at the door, nobody believes it happened. God knows this about you and me, and he's not surprised. But even though God and we ourselves know this tendency of our hearts, that must never stop us from fervently praying. God declares that he is able to do far more than we will ever ask or imagine according to the power that he has made to work inside of us. And that means that his works will always exceed our prayers. Always. He knows that we struggle to believe this unreservedly, but whether it is with faith like a mustard seed or or faith like a mountain, we must continue to pray. Prayer is the intentional, conscious acknowledgement of our utter dependence on God in all things and for all things. Let me say that again. Prayer is the intentional and conscious acknowledgement of our utter dependence on God in all things and for all things. Therefore, we must continue to pray. In his commentary on this passage, Kent Hughes says, the power of fervent, even if doubting prayer, is greater than the power of kings. Loving Father, we thank you for this magnificent passage. Wow, just amazing from start to finish. We thank you for this beautiful book of Acts. Uh, it is, as we've said before, is more, it feels more relevant right now than it's ever been. But what we know, Father, is this. We know you intend for us to behold your revelation of yourself and your interventions in, in the history of your creation And you intend for us to be in awe, to be in awe of you and to bow down and worship and adore you as we talked about this morning. And then to live lives that are submitted to your purposes because those purposes are always perfect and they never, ever fail. You are the all-powerful, perfectly sovereign, holy and righteous God of all that exists. We love you. We thank you for the gift of eternal life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we ask you to put us to good use until Jesus comes back to claim his bride. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen.